I'm off the hook today. If you've been here for a while, we've been in this series called Explore God, tackling some tough questions. And today is one of the toughest. The title you'll see on your outline is, Why Would a Loving God Send People to Hell? And so for this difficult question, we brought in reinforcements. If you are between the ages of 12 and 17 years old, you might recognize the speaker who's about to come onto this stage as a famous person. Because our speaker today was the summer camp speaker at Hume Lake for the middle school kids when we were there, was the high school speaker week one this summer. He speaks every summer these last four years up at our camp where a thousand kids go every single year. And so even these last few weeks, as Austin's been on our campus, I watch all these middle schoolers watch him walk by like a summer camp celebrity. And then someone comes to me and says, is that Austin Payne? And I say, Yes, that is Austin Payne. And they say, why is he at our church? And I said, well, he's speaking on Sunday, and he's also our new head of student ministries. And so we are delighted to announce not just Austin, but Austin and his wife, Paige, are jumping onto our staff in the new year. Paige is doing a residency with soul care and spiritual formation. Austin's leading up our student ministries department and directly overseeing our high school ministry starting January 1st. And so they just finished up, uh, it's probably what, four or five, six years of ministry in San Diego. Last week, Austin will tell you about that. And they've got a few months off and they're moving up here with their beautiful daughters, Phoebe, who's four, six months old, and Piper, who is like four going on, three going on 35 years old. Um, But Austin, I'll talk to you about them. But I would love it for today, if you would be willing to give a warm three crosses, welcome home, welcome to Austin Payne. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Thank you. I want to say give him hell, but... Uh. This guy. Yeah. He said, give him hell if you missed yeah. that. You yeah. missed, Here on. it comes. Here it comes. Okay. Hellfire, brimstone, etc. Yes, sir. All right. What's up, church? How are we doing this morning? Good. Good. Okay. Like Danny said, uh, my name is Austin. I'm so stoked to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, we are still about two months away from moving up here. My, my wife, Paige, sitting right here. Uh, and I have been in San Diego for the last six years, but originally I was actually born in the Kaiser Permanente in Santa Clara. So I'm coming home in a lot of ways to the Bay Area. I saw one Raiders jersey at least in the house. I'm still a Raiders fan. So I see you. I see you. Sorry, 49ers. But um, yeah, I, I couldn't be more excited to be here this morning. I, I loved this series. I've been following along from afar. And if you're new with us this morning, um, we're in good company because I'm new too. But you could go back and you could log on to the, the YouTube channel and look at these hard questions that this series has been tackling. Like in the age of science, is it still viable to believe in a God? We've looked over the last couple of weeks at this text and said, is this just a 2,000-year-old book that's archaic that we can refer back to, or does it stand the test of time? Can we still trust this in 2023? We've looked at the question of, can we believe in Jesus without all the God stuff? And then this last week, I love Danny's sermon on in the smorgasbord of religions that we see around the world, is Christianity really the only path to heaven when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, nobody gets to the Father except through me. What did he mean by that? And so I've loved the entirety of this series diving in. And if you're new to church or maybe new to the faith, my hope and my prayer is that this series has helped you tackle some of these hard questions 
and maybe you've leaned in over the last couple of weeks as we've wrestled with this together. Or maybe like Danny said, you've been coming here for a long time and our heart and our hope in this series is that this allows you to set yourself up for cool conversations. I love the way that scripture says, always be prepared to give a hope for the lies within, but do so with gentleness and and kindness and compassion. And so how do we as followers of Jesus respond to the world around us? Even this church going, we are on mission to reach the East Bay with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so your neighbors, your coworkers, maybe your family members, how do we take sermons in like these that are asking the hard questions of the faith and prepare ourselves to have difficult conversations? And today, is one of those difficult conversations. I was uh, imagining, right, um, if you've ever been new somewhere before, you come home from work after a long first day and your spouse meets you at the door and they're like, hey, babe, how was work? And you go, oh, they gave me hell. Um, For me this week, I got home, babe, how was work? They gave me hell. No, literally, they gave me hell. So, Danny, thanks a lot for uh, setting us up for this cool conversation here, but I'm excited and equally terrified all at the same time. But within this topic, today is not going to be an exhaustive message on every question and answer within the doctrine of hell, right? There's, it's literally impossible within 30 minutes for us to dive into this conversation and, and walk through this entirely and to answer all of your questions. I'm not going to solve this. And in fact, I find myself in good company. Uh, several theologians over the last couple of hundred years have wrestled with this topic. And uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite theologians, he said this, if you want to read along with me. Regarding hell, Lewis once wrote, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of scripture and especially of Jesus' own words. We learn more about hell and judgment from Jesus than any other part of scripture. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. Great theologians like R.C. Sproul, Karl Barth, Charles Octavius Booth, even Augustine and Luther have wrestled with this, this conversation, this doctrine of if God is love, then why do people spend eternity in hell? If God is good, then why do we see this suffering both here and eternally? I love on your note sheet on the bottom there, uh, Danny referenced this last week, but this book, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, chapter 12 of this book uh, is a really, really helpful resource within this conversation. If you, after today, have more questions or want to take a deeper dive for yourself, two things. One, there's going to be a conversation on this stage on Wednesday night where a panel uh, of some of our incredible people here at Three Crosses stand up and, and dive into kind of next questions or a question that you might have after today. And so I would invite you to that panel on Wednesday. And then maybe you pick up this book. And this book is uh, 12 chapters of, of Rebecca McLaughlin tackling some of the hardest questions of Christianity. But in chapter 12, she says, this is, this is the most difficult question within the context of Christianity. And she says this in chapter 12. She said, uh, in Confronting Christianity, the doctrine of hell is the most difficult things that Christians are called to believe. We're, at, we're left asking questions like, is God illogical, arbitrary, or unjust? What does the death of a first century Palestinian Jew have to do with you or with me in today's day and age? And so we're left with this tension, right? That if I stood up here on stage and, and said to you as a church, hey, God loves you, my, my 
thought is, my theory is that that's probably not new for a whole lot of you in this room, right? Like that's probably not a a mind-blowing concept. If you've been to church before or around church before, you've probably heard about God's love or that God is love or that God loves you. And yet we hear that. And on the other side of that, we ask the question, if that is true, then why do we see the things that we see? Uh, Every night before bedtime, uh, my daughter, Piper, we do this like bedtime routine, my wife and I, and and it's gotten, the older she's gotten, the more we've seen her, like her negotiation skills increase, right? Parents in the room, right? When your kid doesn't want to go to bed, it's incredible the things that they want to do. Like she'll be like, well, I I need to get a glass of water. And you're like, you never drink water, right? But when it's bedtime, right? She's like, got to go get her glass of water or she's got to go tidy something up. She's like, I got to do, you know, some push-ups real quick. And you're like, push-ups? Like, what are you, what are we even talking about right now? And so, but Piper will ask you these questions when we're doing the nighttime routine. I'll say, Piper, what two things do you know to be true? And she'll say, mommy and daddy love me and God loves me. And this is something that we, we talk about every night. And at this point for my little girl, for my three-year-old, it's just sheer memorization, right? Mommy and daddy love me and God loves me. But I know because of experience, but also the last 10 years of youth ministry, the predominant question that I get as a youth pastor is, If God is good, if God is loving, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? And so when we talk about this in in a bedtime routine, I know that throughout Piper's life, she's going to wrestle with this tension of, I hear you saying that God loves me, and yet I look around the world and I see suffering, and I see brokenness, and I see destruction. And so what do we do with this tension? And, and for the sake of today, I want us to wrestle with this picture of, uh, that, that Scripture provides for us of hell, but also not just the, the picture that we get in Scripture, but maybe you came in today with this idea of what hell is. Right, that maybe we would imagine it as a, a river going downstream, that when we look at the world, we see this like downstream movement where that has like the waterfall at the end of it. You know the movie scene where there's like a waterfall or there's a stream going down, moving downstream, and then all of a sudden at the end of it, the camera pans and there's this waterfall with like sure destruction at the end of it. Maybe we would imagine hell this way, that everything is moving that direction. And if we look at scripture, if we're not careful, we can see 613 Old Testament commands, or we can read the Bible in such a way where God seems like this character who is maybe this bystander going, hey, either follow my rules, lean into scripture and my way of doing life, or go to hell. Maybe we imagine heaven and hell as places where heaven is this place where good people go and hell is this place reserved for the bad people of the world like Hitler and Stalin. And God is, has this proverbial thumb standing by of, yes, you can go to heaven, thumbs up, good person, or no, you go to hell and you're, you're tossed into this river, inevitably moving towards the waterfall that at the bottom of it is destruction. And so we look at the Bible and the, 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 the thing that we wrestle with within Scripture is if good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, we're forced to ask the question, what is a good person and what is a bad person? Really at the heart of the issue, how do we define these two things? And, and there's, there's three aspects that I, I think we can all get on the same page with when it comes to this question of what is a good person and what is a bad person. It's not hard if you turn on the news, right, whether it's CNN or Fox News or you pull up your favorite app to read about the state of the world that we find ourselves in and have this overwhelming feeling that the world itself is going to hell. 
Even in Jesus's day and age, in 2000 years ago, when he was walking the earth, when he would talk about hell, he would use a very real description. He called it Gehenna. And Gehenna was this place that was outside the city gates where there was just this constant fire. And they would take all the trash from the city and it would be piled up there and there would be criminals that would be executed for their crimes and, and their dead bodies would be thrown into this place called Gehenna. And there would be this, this fire and this stench and this chaos and this depravity that would exist. And so when, when Jesus would address the state of the world or when he would talk about hell, he would often refer to Gehenna and people knew exactly what he was talking about. Romans chapter one, when we read the text says the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness that we see around us. I I think we'd be hard pressed not to see the image of that, that. We look at the general state of the world and say, it feels like it's moving more and more into chaos and more and more into destruction and more and more into depravity. Number one, Number two, if we look at ourselves individually, right? I turned 31 this last year, which by no means am I like, do I feel like old? But at the same time, like my body doesn't necessarily respond the same way that it used to. Like I played pickup basketball like a month ago and I promise you there's parts of me that are still sore, right? Like I hit my elbow while playing basketball five weeks ago and if I still hit it quite right, I'm like, ah. Like the, our individual bodies are decaying. We are moving towards, like, we're, we're falling apart in some senses. But it's not just our physical bodies. Like, one of my favorite theologians said, when I was a young man, I sinned a lot more and I felt a whole lot less bad about it. But now that I'm an old man, I sin a lot less, but I feel the weight of my sin. That as we age, as we mature, as we grow, it, we'd be hard pressed to believe that we're actually getting better. Our our wisdom and our age and our maturity would actually just probably give us a self-awareness that we're we're really not good people. Which begs the question, the third thing that I think we can agree with is that if we look at our innermost being, I, I think we could be honest with ourselves that our thoughts can even scare us sometimes. You ever been there? You ever had a thought that scared you? That I I love that it's been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts, right? Run that test on yourself between today and tomorrow. Spouses, right? Just the rest of today and maybe tomorrow, you go home and every time a thought pops into your head, ask yourself the question, would I be okay being like a comic book character where every thought that I have is just like portrayed above my head, right? How long of us would, how many of us would stay married? How many of your friendships would last if your friends could read every thought that you have, I wonder if we had this new technology where I could, you know, we, we could hand select somebody and, and hook a machine up to their head and it would portray on these, this big screen behind us every thought that they've had, every word that they've said in the car when they thought it was just them, right? Like everything they've done, said, thought over the last week, how many of us would go, ooh, pick me, right? None of us. And so we, we, we look at this picture and, and maybe it's oversimplistic to think that there's this river and at the bottom of, the, of, of the, the proverbial waterfall is this place called hell and God is just a bystander going, eh, good people, bad people. But we can agree and understand that if we look at the state of the world around us and the direction that it's heading, it seems like it's heading more and more towards this depravity, that the world itself is going to hell, that we individually are getting not better, but worse than our innermost being, I think we can all agree on the fact that we're probably not good people. 
In fact, scripture will double down on that in Romans chapter three and said, there's no one good, not even one. And it helps give us a construct or an understanding for the state of the world that we actually find ourselves in. And so when we look at this river, what we need from that river is rescuing a savior, something outside of it. But maybe you would stop here and go, wait, Austin, why does the river exist in the first place? Why hell? God almost seems as the one that's like tossing us back into the river and that the entire world is just moving that direction. And he's this bystander. And yet the image of God that we get all throughout scripture is not one of this passive bystander uh, with the sorting ground of the earth, but it's an image of, of one that knows the depth of our rebellion that he can actually see the screen of our, our thoughts and our actions and the life that we're living, that he knows us deeply and he's saddened and heartbroken by the destruction, the suffering, the pain, the brokenness. And yet he's compelled to make a way. A familiar verse for a lot of us, right? John chapter three, verse 16. If you've been around the church, you've probably heard it before. If not, then you've seen it probably on the eye black of an athlete or, or stenciled onto a shoe. And John chapter 316 paints this picture of what if there was a God that knew everything about us and still chose to love us, right? It says this, and you can read along with me on the screen, but it says, John chapter three, verse 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then maybe a, a lesser known two verses, but immediately following John chapter 316, we see the heart of God in scripture. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the, in the name of God's one and only son. See, we see this text and we see the heart of God and we're asked the question, and this is the first fill in the blank uh, on your note sheet today. What if this book Genesis through Revelation was not about what we have to do to get to God, but rather the greatest story ever told about what God has done to get to us. See, Genesis through Revelation, this text is 66 different books written by 40 different authors over a span of 2,000 years on three different continents in three different languages that tells one story. This is the greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told in its entirety about the heart of God being to rescue, to redeem, to restore. That this book is not about what we have to do to get to God. And when we inevitably don't measure up to God's standard, then he just stands by and we go to hell. See, this book is the greatest story ever told about God's rescue mission. I love that we see uh, throughout this text in the book of Exodus We see God rescue his people out of slavery into freedom. That he's not just this deity, but God has a name. He goes from vague to salvific. In Exodus chapter three, he says, my name is Yahweh. We see him double down on that in Exodus chapter 33, where he says, I I am the Lord, the Lord. I'm compassionate and gracious. I'm kind. That we get this picture and understanding of who this God character is. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God says this, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Jesus talks on God's love and mercy again and again in his teachings in the New Testament. And yet we learn more about hell and judgment from Jesus than any other part of scripture. 
the, the climax of this story is we see Jesus come to earth and live this perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And, and then he dies this death that you and I deserve to die so that we might be able to live the life that he deserved to live. But maybe you're sitting here asking the question, well, why did Jesus have to die? Why the cross? Why in the climax of the story do we see death? And on the night before Jesus is hung on that cross, we see him wrestling with God and he asks God to remove the cup of wrath from him. That we see the same wrath that Romans 1 talked about, that that wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. In the climax of this story, we see Jesus take that wrath upon himself. See, and, and wrath, it's not the most popular thing to talk about on a stage, right? Like not many of us, when we need inspiration on a Monday morning, do we like YouTube search? Like, I just need a sermon on God's wrath to get me through this week, right? Like that's, that's probably not your go-to. There's not a lot of worship songs out there where we're sitting here singing about God's wrath and we're like, mm, that's just so encouraging. That's, that's not the most popular topic. In, in fact, right, God's wrath is almost this seemingly psychologically damaging relic from a bygone era. And yet when we look at the text, we can't get past it. That God's love and his judgment cannot be pulled apart. God is love. Therefore, he has wrath. Your next fill in the blank there is an important definition for us to understand. And it's that God's wrath is his love in action against sin. God hates that which hurts the object of his love. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. When you and I love something or love someone, we therefore hate the thing that pulls, that hurts the object of that love. I, I, I feel like I understood this somewhat cognitively before I became a dad, and then I became a dad, and this has taken on a whole new light. I remember one of our first doctor's appointments with Piper. Um, I think she was like four months old, something like that. And this is my first kid. And I had nephews and nieces, but when it's your daughter, it's just different, especially when it's a daughter. And I had heard my daughter cry up to this point, but it was mostly like just normal baby cries. Like I need, you know, to be fed or I need my diaper changed or whatever. You know, you're trying to interpret the cries as a new dad. But then we were in this doctor's office and I remember the doctor looking at me and he's like, all right, dad, um, your, your daughter Piper's about to experience a little bit of pressure which don't doctors love that word, right? That's like a doctor's, like you're about to experience a little pressure and you're like, what does that mean? And so I remember him taking out like the needle and she was going to get one of her first shots and he gives her a shot and I heard this cry come out of Piper's mouth that I hadn't really heard before. And it was the, the cry of like, something's hurting me. It was a cry of pain. And I looked at this doctor and I was like, I might murder you, right? <laughs> like you just hurt the object of my love. You, you did something that is causing her pain. And I love this definition of God's wrath because we start to understand more and more why God is the way that he is. If God is love, then he cannot stand by while sin enters into the world and there's this brokenness and there's this destruction that is causing the object of his love pain. And there's this chaos and this depravity in the world. And so God hates sin. And God's wrath is his love in action against sin. But with the beauty of the gospel is we see at the, in the cross of Jesus, the climax of the story, that Jesus takes that wrath upon himself. And so it's overly simplistic to think of heaven as a resting place for good people and hell as a place for the really bad. I love these two definitions. If you want to read on the screen, heaven is the full blessing of relationship with God. 
Heaven is home, an embodied experience of deep relationship with God and his people on a recreated earth. See, heaven's not just a a, a paradise somewhere uh, on a beach where you just get to have this cosmic retirement forever. Hell, or sorry, heaven is not like we float away on these clouds and we're wearing these white robes with a harp and it's just this like eternal worship service. A lot of us are thankful for that. Like I, I don't get me wrong. I love singing. I love worship as much as the next guy. But like when, when, if you think about heaven as just like a worship service forever and all we're going to do is sing, a lot of us are like, ah, okay, an eternal church service. Okay. I guess, I guess I'm here for it. I know heaven we see is the full blessing and relationship with God. It's home. It's this embodied experience of full fulfillment, full satisfaction in Jesus with his people. And hell is the opposite. If Jesus in scripture is called the bread of life, then loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, then loss of Jesus means paying the price for ourselves. Church, my heart for us today is that we would change our view of earth and we would look around us and see the decomposition of all things. That today we would change our view of God and see him not as simply condemner, but as rescuer. The God that steps in and moves and takes action to restore and to rescue and to redeem. And that we would change our view of who he saves. We see this in John 3, 16, 17, and 18, that it's whoever turns to him. And so as we wrap up and close on, on your note sheet, uh, there's, there's three more things that I, w- I just want us to understand about hell. And the first is that when, when Jesus teaches about it, that hell is a reality. That Jesus taught that hell is a real place where some beings will spend eternity. In Jesus' teachings, hell is not figurative or symbolic. It's a real place in which real experiences take place. Jesus portrayed what hell is like with vivid imagery, such as fire and darkness. But not only is it reality, it exists because of our rebellion. That according to Jesus, hell is a place for those who reject God, rebelling against his kingship and refusing his grace. I often think about Adam and Eve in the garden. And when we go back all the way to the beginning of this story in Genesis, that we see God create male and female, and they exist in this perfect place with perfect relationship with each other and with God. And yet because God is love, forced love is not love at all. And so he gives them a choice to obey and to love him or to not. And so there's this tree placed in the middle of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and they're given the choice to listen and obey and to lean into the way of God's, uh, God's will, his design for their life, or to choose their own way of doing things, rebellion. And, and maybe if you're anything like me growing up in the church, I imagined uh, this like object in the middle of the garden that they were like, oh man, if I could only get my hands on that, right? Like I, I think about like a starving person with a huge steak dropped in front of him and they're like... I'll try not to. But when we look at Adam and Eve, when we understand the story, they're already living in full fulfillment and satisfaction and perfection in relationship with God and with each other. And so in the midst of that, they still chose rebellion, which demonstrates to us the nature of our heart. 
And so in the midst of this rebellion, we look at scripture and we see parables that consistently portray people rejecting God's invitation to fellowship. And the only alternative to fellowship with God is eternity in hell. Romans chapter five, uh, along the journey of Paul's overarching story of this is what the scriptures are about. In the book of Romans, he takes on, hey, this is who God is. And in light of who God is, this is who we are. And along that way, in Romans chapter one, he talks about God's wrath being revealed. In Romans chapter three, he talks about us not being good people. That there was no one good, not even one. And then in Romans five, I love the phrase that he uses. He says that just the right time. It's as if God went, the timing is perfect right now for me to demonstrate something to my people. Romans 5 says at just the right time, God demonstrates his love for you and for, uh, for me, for us in this, that while we were still sin- sinners, while we were the enemies of God, when we found ourselves in rebellion, that's when God said the timing is perfect. Let me demonstrate my love for them in this, that while they were still sinners, Christ died for us. That his death was about taking on the wrath of God himself to making a way for you and for me to get back to God. And I love that we see the heart of God in Romans chapter five of not just that hell is a reality or that exists because of rebellion, but that he is a God that desires reconciliation. And maybe sitting here, friends, today that there are potentially a lot of unanswered questions And maybe you came in here wrestling with this or you have a a close loved one that's wrestling with this topic. And my guess is that coming out of this room, this is going to be an ongoing wrestle. Hopefully we've we've tackled some of it this morning and giving you some tools to dive into scripture to understand more about the world that we find ourselves in in the heart of God. But one thing I do know and one thing I'm confident of is that as we turn to scripture, The overwhelming promise of scripture is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. John chapter five, verse 24 says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. The promise of scripture is the hope that we have in Jesus to pass over from death to life. That God is not this bystander outside of the river, but God has entered into the river and made a way. That if at the end of that waterfall, we see this destruction and we see this depravity, that God, through the person of Jesus, has made a way to, to rescue us. And that our belief in him, our trust in him, is what gives us access to that salvation. But he doesn't stop there. I love in Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, says this in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, talking about Jesus' death on the cross, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He goes on in verse 20 to say this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. At church, God didn't just rescue you for the sake of rescuing you. He rescued you and then gave you and I a mission that God has a plan A to save the world and there is no plan B and his plan A is to use us to reach the world around us through the gospel. 
I love the way that 2 Corinthians puts it, that says God, his love compels us and he's making his appeal through us. That we are Christ's ambassadors. I love the imagery there. I spent most of my life down in South America. My parents left Southern California in 1999 when I was seven years old and we moved down to Quito, Ecuador. And every 4th of July in Quito, the ambassador of the United States would throw this big 4th of July party. And I'll never forget, there was this, this once a year party where we would drive to the ambassador's house. And as soon as we would drive to the ambassador's house, we would open up the gate. And as we got out of the car, you would hear country music playing. And it was like, oh, sounds like home. Right? And then you would interact with someone and they would greet you and they'd be speaking English. It was like, whoa. Right? Like I, most of my life, you know, I'd live and, and, and walk in, in Quito where the predominant language is Spanish and I can speak Spanish, I can interact, but there's something about when you're greeted in your heart language, it's like, oh, these, these people speak the same language as I do. And then I'd walk over to one of the coolers in the ambassador's house and crack it open. There'd be a Dr. Pepper there. And as a high school student in Ecuador, it was like a Dr. Pepper was sacred. And there was something about cracking that Dr. Pepper and you drink it and you're like, oh, this tastes like home. And you'd smell the barbecue, the hot dogs and the hamburgers. And there was, when you were in the ambassador's house, it gave us this little taste of home. And Paul uses this language in 2 Corinthians to say, friends, church, if you are saved by Jesus and you put your hope and trust in him for salvation, then we jump in on the rescue mission. And then our mission in life, our goal is that God, Christ's love would, would compel us and that we would be Christ's ambassadors as we went throughout our week this week, the rest of today, Sunday, tomorrow, as you go to work or interacting your families, God is making his appeal through you and through me. That maybe you came here today and maybe you're wrestling. When I talk about the world going to hell and you individually not being a good person. Maybe I don't have to convince you of that. Maybe you walk through those back doors and you went, I, I, I know very well, I'm not a good person. I know what I do. I know what I think. And friend, can I just talk to you for a second? I, I believe wholeheartedly that God wants to speak to you and help you understand uh, I love the way Keller puts it within this quote. He says, the gospel is this, that we are far more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And maybe you're sitting here and you need to hear that. That you know you are far more sinful and broken than you ever dared believe. And you find yourself sitting here in this moment going, how did I get here? but you are far more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope for because of the gospel that we find in scripture. And that Jesus has made a way. And if you're sitting here today and you needed to hear that, I would just encourage you, man. Maybe you find me afterwards or find Pastor Danny afterwards, find a a staff member of Three Crosses, show up this week and ask those questions and lean in and go, "I, I know I need that. But maybe you're sitting here and you know that your hope, your trust, your confidence is in Jesus. And my encouragement for you, my challenge for you is that this week we would walk through our life knowing that the gospel didn't just save us, that the gospel is also for the community around us that needs to hear it. Second Peter says this, just in closing, it says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's timing is different than our timing. 
thousand days is a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. He's not slow in fulfilling his promise, but he's calling every single one of us into his great rescue mission. That we are to be compelled by the love of Christ to be his ambassadors. So, friends, what would it look like for us to respond to that this week? Maybe you need to respond to the truth of the gospel and you individually put your hope and your trust in Jesus for the very first time. Or maybe compelled by the gospel, you need to move this week in your workplace or with your families as you go throughout your life to say, I'm going to be Christ's ambassadors this week. That's what I'm going to be a part of. I'm going to live on mission. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for the good news of scripture that we can read absolutely about a world where hell is a reality and exists because of our rebellion. And that every single one of us, in and of ourselves, left to ourselves, we do rebel against your way. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, our attitudes, fundamentally opposed to yours. And yet, God, thank you that you made a way. Thank you that you are a God that reconciles, that redeems, that rescues. That the greatest story ever told is packed full of you pursuing your people. God, may we respond to that grace. May we respond to that truth this week, maybe for the first time, or God, as, as serving as a reminder that we are your people and that we are to live on mission, on purpose. We love you. Thanks for loving us first. It's your name we pray. Amen.